Welcome to Relate Your Research, the online podcast featuring social work researchers. I'm Jessica Renarsson and learning should be relatable. Welcome. Today we are doing a live recording, very exciting, right here in Stellenbosch with Hilary Chabaya, a postgrad researcher from Zimbabwe, which is very exciting. Welcome. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's so exciting to have a live recording. We've done a, a number of recording calls, so it's exciting to be to be back in the space. Relate Your Research is a podcast intended to give social workers a platform to share their research, their journey, and yeah, the lessons that they've learned along the way. So thank you for being willing to share with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks. So today we, we have you here to share a little bit about your story and maybe you could start. How did you get involved with social work? Where did this journey begin? So for me, I think as long as I can remember really from primary through to high school, you know, like I always had a way with people and I didn't particularly, you know, know anything about, you know, social dynamics or anything. It just came naturally. Um, I'd have people coming to me with problems and I kind of just find a way to like uh, help them or whatever, if it's comforting them or um, whatever the situation might be, I always seem to have, you know, like a solution to it. And um, I've always had the, the ability to just feel with the person, even though I haven't necessarily experienced whatever it is that they're talking about. I've always had, um, you know, like an inclination to how tough it can be for whatever thing that they're going through. And later on, I decided to do my A-levels in arts and that kind of narrowed down the things I could possibly pursue in university. And um, I had two options, either doing law or social work. And through high school, literally my history teacher and my dad were promoting social work every other second chance they had. Do you know what? You should do social work. So I was like, you know what? Yes, let me just go on and do this. And ever since, I've actually loved this. I cannot imagine myself doing anything else. Amazing. And so what was that experience like for you? Were there other people doing social work? Was it... No, kind of just you on your mission. Not particularly. Um, it was just kind of just me on my own, and I was like, I'm doing this. I have no idea what this thing is. Yeah. I know I'll be working with people, and I think I'm good at this. So let's do it. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, what opportunities prompted or guided your process? Because um, you're now a postgrad researcher, right? And many people may or may not decide to make that transition from an undergrad social work space to to a research career. Yes. For my master's, um, partly, I just wasn't ready to get into practice just yet. It's honest. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, the other part, I was just kind of fascinated with being a master in social work, I just thought it would be really cool. I mean, this is before I started doing it. Mm. Then um, when I actually got into um, the research, then I thought to myself, 
I actually kind of like this. I kind of, um, you know, just having a topic and having to delve into so many things and to come up with this research document right at the end. It was a very nice experience for me. I really enjoyed my master's. Um, the shift from master's to PhD, you know, I did tell myself by the time I finished my master's, I am ready to go into practice and I did take a gap year and um, I did some work not particularly in social work, but I found myself actually using so many of my social work skills because I had to work with people so many times. So I wasn't particularly working at, you know, like a welfare agency, but I was actually doing some social working. Amazing. Then um, in the middle of all of that, my supervisor for my master's calls me Professor Engelbrecht and um, he tells me about this opportunity, but I funded PhD. So I'm thinking, uh, I don't know if I really want to do this, but you know what? This person went out of their way to tell me about this opportunity. So let me apply for it. And also I'm thinking, what are the chances? So I just, I just applied, you know, just to kind of, to be honest, just to get it out of the way. And um, I wasn't, I didn't put too much reverence in it. And I mean, I didn't really think I'd get it, to be honest. And um I think also on some level, I kind of didn't want to do a PhD <laughs> because of this many horror stories yeah. that you just hear and yeah. you just see. And I applied for this thing, got the scholarship and started my PhD journey in 2019. Wow. And here now. It's fantastic. And it just goes to show the um, value of having someone believe in you and what the potential you have you know in right, some ways right, i right. think we often discredit ourselves actually to right, say, right 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 and i think also for me or 100%. that will be someone else 100 percent, yeah and i think also like um you know like just the relationships that you kind of formulate with your supervisors besides them being your supervisor and have being that person your reference point and being that person who guides you through whatever topic that you have I think it's just important to just, you know, actually culture um, a relationship that supersedes that and that goes beyond that. If it wasn't for that, if I had a terrible relationship with my supervisor, probably wouldn't have done great on my masters and my supervisor would probably not have contacted me, you know, for this opportunity. Sure. It's definitely so, a, a lesson to be learned there. Hey? 100%. What have people responded? How have they responded to you being a social work researcher? They don't particularly respond to me being a social work researcher. So this is actually very interesting. So the first thing they respond to is me being a male guy. Okay. Male doing social work. And because, I mean, obviously the stigmatization of social work and being in quotes a feminine profession. So they're kind of um, startled with that. It's like, okay, okay. Then I tell them that I'm doing a doctoral study. Then they're more fascinated with me doing a doctoral study <laughs> than me actually being a researcher. So yeah. Yeah, they, they're more fascinated with that other than me actually being a researcher. Yeah. Your family must be so proud. Very proud and um, kind of putting, you know, just pressure on me because they're already... <laughs> Call me a doctor and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's happening, it's happening. It's happening, just not now. <laughs> but it's also like, um, sure. I think it's also a motivational uh, factor or s some influence behind it. Mm -hmm. 
and um, you kind of see, you, you almost visualize yourself because people continuously reinforce this, um, whatever, this idea in your head and you're thinking, okay, okay, I need to live up to this, I need to step up my game, I need to, whatever things, like it, it just has some motivational influence behind it. I think there's a lesson to be taken from that in it alone is just um, for our listeners, right. this specifically early career researchers, to right. see the value of a support system that believes and backs you. Um, yeah, and we can nod away because I think without it, a researcher is very isolated actually. Yes, yes. And um, I think also because research, by the time you're done, it's it's yes it's you you're at the forefront you are the one who's controlling this ship but it takes a lot of um help from so many people your participants so many people by the time you're actually done it's it's actually um your work is effort of like a lot of people and you're the one who actually brings it all together yeah. and you can never do it on your own it's almost impossible yeah mm. absolutely so you mentioned uh, earlier in our discussion, not on air, that yeah. your research focus has changed. Could you tell us um, just a bit of a background, a backstory always helps to give some context. How did you land up here and um, with your topic of social action? I am looking into social work and social action. I am particularly focusing on the perceived roles of social workers and social protest actions. Okay, so just to give you an overview and background to this study, if you look at the origins of social work, they're usually tied to the charity organization societies and the industrial revolution. So what, hap what used to happen or what warranted this charity organization society to be formed were the social conditions and just general living conditions of the people who worked in the industries. So they decided to help those people with, uh, you know, their health, trying to attend to any kind of social problems that they're experiencing. So in this way, we see that from the very beginning, social work has always been inseparable from social need, from social justice, you know, human development, and just the general underlying drive to address the structural inequalities that are tied to this. Um, later on, there was this settlement movement that developed, and unlike the charity organization societies, their main focus was on untangling structural inequalities as opposed to the charity organization societies who viewed you know people's shortcomings as the reason why they were in whatever situation that they were in tied to this settlement movement was uh, a new kind of social work which was different from mainstream social work and it was called radical social work this radical social work had kind of the sim similar um, viewpoints as the settlement movement. They advocated for what was called critical consciousness, identifying societal factors such as inequality, 
as the causes of poverty as opposed to individual shortcomings. The other thing that radical social work promotes is critical consciousness and social action. Now we get to the interesting things. So critical consciousness is generally the ability to intervene in reality in order to change it. So we're talking of an in-depth understanding of the world which allows you to really understand you know, social and political contradictions. The other thing that is tied to this um, concept of social, of critical consciousness is social action, which in social work is uh, a method of mobilizing masses in order to bring about structural changes in a social system. So that's kind of the backstory. If you look at why people protest, you see that in the South African context, there's this so-called service delivery protest where people are, are fighting for, you know, water, sanitation, electricity, so many things which are generally just grouped as service delivery protests. When you look at the reasons why people are protesting, you see that these things are rooted in poor government and systematic and structural sources. And this has some links with social work. Because remember, when we talked about the origins of social work being tied to the Industrial Revolution and just addressing the problems that people were facing. When you move back, come again to present time, we're talking about why are people protesting? They're protesting for sanitation, they're protesting for electricity, which are somewhat similar to the reasons why social work originated in the first place. So already we're, sitting, we're already seeing the subtle links between social protests and social work. As you add theory, it becomes more complex. So, 100%. And yeah. now you're dealing with social work theory, political theory, economic theory, that's the challenge I've been facing. Like, I've, there are times now when I'm sitting, I promise you, Jesse, and I'm reading economics, and I'm just like, but I need to read it, I need to understand it, so that, you know, what I'm talking about, so that I'm actually confident in what I'm talking about, yeah. Now the questions that um, we need to ask ourselves is, if we look at just on a global and on a national level, just the rate and the incidence of social protests extremely high. In South Africa alone, around the mid-2000s, there were an average of 8,000 gathering acts that were recorded by the South African uh, Police Service. A gathering act is basically the right to protest. So in South Africa, luckily, we have freedom and we have the right to, to gather and this is how they came up with this average. There was an average of 8,000 gathering acts since the mid-2000s. We're in 2020 now. You can imagine, um, I mean, this is debatable, but you can imagine how many protests have been recorded from then up until now. Globally, there are protests left, right, center. You switch on your TV, there's a protest. You switch on your radio, there's a protest going on. Um, you have to switch, you need to use a different driving route because that route is blocked. So if there is such a high incidence of social protests in South Africa, 
and around the world. The question we need to ask now is, is social work involved in this? Given those subtle links that we talked about between social protests and social work. And if they are involved, what is the role of social work and social protests? And if social work is not involved in this protest, why is it not involved? Mm-hmm. The other thing that we are bound to ask ourselves is the existence of this ethical dilemma. On the one hand, you're mandated to challenge defamation of human rights, you're supposed to stand up for social justice and all of that. Then on the other hand, you are expected to act and you know be in line with the code of ethics. So this is where the ethical dilemma comes in. Back in 2016, they were social workers who protested in South Africa and they marched to, I think, the union buildings in Pretoria. And this is just the one area, but people were protesting all over the country. Then um, there was a case of 90 high-risk children who, were, who stayed at the youth and childcare facility, and they were taken away, or I think there was, there was no one to supervise them, and there was an infant, a six-month-old infant, who then passed away. So there's an ethical dilemma here. On the one hand, yes, you're fight because these people are protesting because of you know, neoliberalism. They're protesting because the government is not giving them enough subsidies to deliver whatever social services that they need to deliver. So they are standing up for the people that they're serving. But in the midst of all this, they're kind of going against the same ethical conduct that's mandating them to stand up for this right. So social workers are now in an ethical conundrum. Do you fight for your service users or do you not? Do you just, what do you do? So we need to, someone needs to unpack this. Wow. So it's like the, the no man's land of not knowing, do we stand in camp A or camp B? What do you do? What do you do? Yes. Um, so that's kind of the backstory yeah. to this. Cool. <laughs> I think it's exciting to hear the um, bravery in some ways of tackling a topic that is fueled by history and by politics. 100%. Very contentious topic. Totally. Okay. So continue the story for us. Where does this go next? Right. So up until now, some of the interesting things that I've found um a there is a political nature in social work and um this is quite frankly something i was not aware of you know through my undergrad up to my masters i've always had this perspective uh, this certain perspective of social work which is completely dissociated from politics because I've actually not witnessed um, any kind of involvement and you're never educated on any kind of, you know, active involvement of social work and politics. They're always uh, presented as two separate topics. But um, when you do research on the topic, you see that social work has been depoliticized and it has been made as a neutral practice where they take out the struggle out of this practice. The general presentations of social work are, you know, are political and 
it's more of a technical profession undertaken by well-educated and kind people and you see in many documents you see that social issues are often depoliticized by defining them as individual shortcomings as medical or psychiatric diagnosis as criminal activities and other forms of defiance but in actuality social work is actually um, a series of acute ongoing political struggles over you know what services are we rendering what resources do we need to who do we provide the services and in what amount do we have to um, actually deliver this uh, services the other interesting finding is the dichotomy between social workers as state agents and activists so I discovered that in most cases, in many cases, um, to be bold, that social workers have are nine to five agents and five to nine activists. So what does that say? Is, is, is there space? Is there willingness? Is there scope within social work to engage with broader structural issues that actually affects the lives of the people we work with, or is there not? Um, wow. Food for thought. Food for thought. There's, a, there's an article sitting there, that's for sure. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that there's this um, tension in some way between what a social worker does at work and then the causes that they feel so tied to or passionate about that maybe even got them into social work to begin with. Exactly, exactly. Um, and some of the reasons um, one can imagine, I already mentioned the issue of the ethical code, that um, the dilemma, there's, you don't really know where you stand. Um, on the one hand, you are standing up for the people you fight for, or you have to stand up for the people you fight for, but then your social work agency doesn't really um, condone such actions, then people are only left to, you know, enact their activism when they're not actually at their nine to five. Mm -hmm. And when you go back into history, you will see, and you see that um, most social workers belonged to unofficial social work groups that had mandated themselves to fight for people, but these were not social work agencies per se. So yeah, it goes back again to you know the question I pose: Is there actually a space? Is there willingness within um, the social work arena to actually engage with these structural issues, especially in this um, present neoliberal context? Definitely, you are very brave to tackle a topic <laughs> like this. Um, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced in your study um, thus far? Besides this being a very contagious topic, you know, the existence of just social work and social protest in the same sentence is just um, cause for panic and just raucous. Uh, and you know, we live in arguably a very conservative world order 
where, like I said, because of neoliberalism and all of that, people, uh, the rich keep getting richer and the poor are still poor. And, you know, there are so many things that are put in place to kind of maintain this structure. And we see that all those problems that we as social workers are fighting for are rooted in structures, in policies that need to be reformulated, structures that need to uh, be amended so that we actually deal with the root causes and not just deal with the symptoms and just attend to the symptoms and actually make the social work profession live to all these ideals that they purport to live to, you know, fighting for social justice. What does fighting for social justice actually entail? You know, we talk about social change. The global definition talks about social change. It talks about a movement from individual to collective approaches. But what does that actually entail in practice? What are we actually doing? Are we actually living up to that or not? Um, the other challenge that I find with this topic is that, um, I mean, it, it's very political and you're stepping on a lot of people's toes. And so you have, or I have to come up with a very dense and at the same time, wide theoretical undergirding for this study. So that's very challenging because um, that already adds to the complexity of this program on its own. So, sure. yeah. no, absolutely. And where do you see this research um, fitting into social work today? How is this going to impact a social worker, let's say at an NGO, or a social worker at a social service organisation or child, a child welfare situation? What does this mean for, for us? You know, with the continuous involvement of... We have seen social workers being involved in social protests all over the world. We're talking Spain, uh, Hong Kong, you know, Britain, Hungary... A lot of places, social workers are continuously getting involved in social protests. Some social workers want to be involved in protest actions, but they don't really know, um, you know, their role and where they should, how they should probably enact this role. You know, all those questions. So I do believe that um, by the time this study comes to um, an end, social workers and other professionals alike would be able to navigate through you know, some of these difficult situations. They'll be able to navigate through the ethical conundrum. They'll be able to actually know what their role entails in social protest actions. Thank you for sharing with us your journey. And I think for young researchers, people that are interested in a postgrad program, it's always so valuable to hear the, the journey along the way and the stories that come. So, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We would love to hear from you. And if you are listening through iTunes, please leave us a review. If you are listening through Iono FM or any of the other platforms, please subscribe or leave us a comment. All of these things help us to improve our reach and promote the podcast further. Why should research be confined to pen and paper? 
make sure you've subscribed to not miss out on any of our discussions or browse through our previous episodes to see if there are any episodes you think someone would benefit from.